Hi and welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Stephen Ridgeway and this is a uh, Talking BTE episode for uh, January 29, 2011. And this is a uh, special edition uh, f- live from the RCC Unconference in Canberra or the uh, recent change in conference which is a uh, conference that's being held here for three days uh, at uh, Canberra Uni all about wikis, wiki culture, wiki technology, uh, pretty much everything wiki. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, what we thought we'd do, we've got a bit of a round table uh, group of people here and have a bit of a discussion and uh, record it as a podcast. So what I might do is uh, just go around the, uh, around the table and uh, everyone introduce themselves. Left of the dealer. <laughs> Indeed. I'm Michael Coghlan from TAFE in South Australia, or from, excuse me, <coughs> New Learning, Independent E-Learning Consulting. Uh, Lee Blackall and... I'm interested in uh, informal learning uh, using the internet and the social media and things like that and I happen to work for the University of Canberra. Tom Worthington, an adjunct lecturer at the Engineering and Computer Science Department at the Australian National University. I'm interested in very formal online learning. Kirsty Sharp from the Tasmanian Polytechnic. Um, I like to say that I meddle in all things e-learning and Wiki's being part of that. Uh, On a continuum of formal to informal. Uh, My name's Rose Rosdanek. I'm representing myself today and I'm interested in everything and particularly heckling the views of others. (laughs) Um, Hi everyone, Robin Jay. I'm now... 100% 100% almost education learning consultant um, so yeah and also a ceramic student so I'm also going to be speaking from a vet student perspective I guess from this point yeah. alright fabulous well we actually don't have any online um, participants today which is uh, quite unusual we were hoping for one of our regular participants, uh, Alex, uh, <laughs> but uh, he's uh, otherwise detained. So, hi Alex, if you're listening to this, we did try, <laughs> but uh, we'll catch up with you at another point. So, I guess this particular um, get-together is a bit of a focus on VET. Uh, well, not? with a particular no. focus on VET. So, yeah. you said at the start that we're at a wiki conference. Mm. This session is probably not much about wikis. Wikis might be part of it. So in the unconference method, the first thing we did here yesterday morning, day one of this three-day event, was brainstorm what we'd like to do up on a board here in another room. And because I thought there'd be a number of vet people here together and other people who are interested in things vet, like Tom, that we'd just block this session out to talk about what's happening in vet specifically to do with e-learning but not only to do with e-learning so it's a very open session I guess as I put the you know the session up I might just take the opportunity to say a few things which have been on my mind and we don't have to follow this discussion or take these points any further so it's just it's just a, a random place to start I work as an e-learning coordinator, professional development person and part of my role, in fact most of my role in my working life is to support, encourage people to use e-learning. This, as we all would know, means that 
if you're doing e-learning effectively, if you're using these new tools, it's, it should change the way you teach. And it has a significant impact on traditional methods of teaching if you're using this technology effectively. We work in a system where just about everything outside of the e-learning realm is lined up against that happening. It, it makes innovation, it makes new methodologies really, really difficult. And I think we've all struggled and thought about it for years. How do we operate within this system? We do operate within this system. We manage. But I was reminded again of the importance of this issue recently when uh, Mark, no, Andrew Douch spoke at both the Melbourne and Sydney e-learning conferences recently and he lined up capacities of left and right brain and kind of mapped that against educational processes and what he revealed is that just about everything we do in our lives, and not just bed, it's in schools, it's in universities, across the board, basically our systems are designed to concentrate only on left brain stuff. It's all about logic, sequence, outcomes, things to do with process, with, with dramatic arts, with anything creative, anything to do with innovation. It basically doesn't get a look in in our system. So this raises all sorts of issues. I mean, we're, we're kind of a, a classic example of bad practice if you look at it from an educational perspective. So, where do we go with this? And I was really intrigued by stuff that Lee Blackwell posted the other day, that uh, guy Josh Bennett, who's kind of working outside the system as an independent educator. You asked the question earlier, Rose, what do we do about this? Do we just stand back and take it? Do we, do we go on coping, kind of battening down, just working within a, a flawed system? Or do we try and operate differently, try and move outside the system, establish a forum where we make our views known? So there's a few thoughts from me about how I feel in a VET system that's kind of lined up to oppose the way, just about everything I feel about the way that education should be conducted. Can I add to that that, um, it, and also a system that increasingly is not being designed or led by educators or communities or students? Precisely. Or, yeah. I mean, so it's it is drifting, in my view. It's a bureaucratic system. It's bureaucratic, yeah. It's a government department. Yeah. Look, I, having just come out of uh, higher end, I, I actually think there's a lot more potential in the vet than, than, um, than we perhaps give credit for. And, and um, I think we suffer... Um, through lack of good teacher and in inverted commas training, but uh, if we can overcome that hurdle, I think I think we can. I'm feeling positive. I think we can we can do something. But I think higher ed, for me, is just totally dysfunctional um, at this point in time, and I really hold grave concerns for can you, it. Can you describe some of the elements of, of why it's dysfunctional? Um, look, I've, I've come out of a system talking to really innovative teachers who are told if you want a future in this organisation you will um, stop thinking about teaching and get on with the, um, your research and your pumping out of papers and bringing in of money 
uh, other people who've told me that they've listened to um, new teachers being told that um, if you have a choice between walking into a lecture theatre totally unprepared or or being late with your research paper, you will walk into that lecture theatre totally unprepared. So, uh, higher ed, I think, has lost its way. I think it, I think it's totally focused on uh, money and research. And so, when, the, um, when you say research, you mean papers. You don't mean discovery or knowledge sharing. Funded research. Funded research in your field Not hobby study. research. Chasing dollars and publishing yeah, things. There's a word I encountered with um, University of Oakland. Uh, I'm so bad with names, but it was an outstanding paper, Academic Capitalism, Making the Invisible Hand Visible. And it was just basically laying out this commercial, corporate kind of quiet takeover of the university. I haven't really experienced in any other university, so to me it's just, that's the water. But, um, but uh, yeah, funny enough. When I do a Google search on academic capitalism, Lee's all over blog it. posting comes up first on the that's list. Because I, that's because I blog, that person used a journal. But, um, yeah, that's right. Um, Anyway, it was a pretty nice paper just laying out all the issues from you know, staff being overworked, students coming in. So it's Susan Albury, thanks very much, Susan Albury. And it's a really, really, I found it very accessible, um, spoke to all the problems we talk about, framed it so, okay, now we've got it in a pigeonhole, academic capitalism. Now we can talk about it more clearly, making the invisible hand visible and, and uh, speak to the effects and, and stuff. Apart from that, I can't really draw any more out of it. The uninitiated, like I don't work in universities, the argument would be, well, research research surely is what drives the discipline areas and... Yeah, it's research-led teaching, they, uh, they call it. So how could you argue with that? I don't actually understand what the problem is because you would want universities at the cutting edge of research to be teaching and discovering those things with the students. It's, it's not like um, the trades, which, which might be prescriptive in what they're teaching. So I don't understand the nub of what you're mm. saying about research. Is that it take, takes over from the effort intellectual effort being put into the teaching practice within the university whilst they might be doing research and uncovering new things making new statements about things um, that that's given more value given more recognition it leads to tenure and so on as opposed to being an excellent teacher yeah and the, and the two don't aren't mm. aligned Mm. I mean, you could be excellent at one and, and not at the other. The tack on is you've got to walk into lecture theatre and you've got to, you know, get this bunch of students through this course. Unfortunately, the kind of uh, research practice doesn't seem to translate to teaching. That's incredible. Practice. It's very, it's very odd. And and from what I've seen, you know, people who um, who want to teach well and engage their students in really innovative ways burn out because they end up spending so many hours a week both doing their research and then um, you know, doing their preparation for... Mm. I, don't think there's, I don't think there's anything new in this and I don't really see um, that 
capitalism in academia is necessarily a bad thing or, or new. A couple of years ago, I was, I was at Delphi in Greece and walked where the gymnasium used to be and had a sense of this is where education used to be. The philosophers used to hang out and do their teaching. Um, but they had to earn a living. They had to get money out of people. They would have had arguments between research and teaching and researching weapons for the state and all those sorts of things. Um, I think the issue is how can we use these new technologies to do these things well, but I don't think we'll ever get away from those sorts of... I suppose, I suppose the thing that the... Uh, I suppose the thing that Susan's paper brings, and I'm just looking at the quote for... She lists off where academic capitalism make, has an impact, and on the question of research, it's, there is, uh, it's funded research, not curiosity-driven research. And, and so the discovery in, in academia, and, and also that the reason we held the institutions up, I imagine, is to protect that type of, or to make that type of thing possible, that curiosity-driven research or ancient Greek, because for generations we thought that important topic. But now, if students aren't enrolling in it, or a government or a business is not funding the research, and if that research is not patentable, then we'll drop that academic capitalism and then but I agree with you Tom it's not necessarily a bad thing you play it out to this post of um, about Josh Bennett, Josh or, about Bennett, Josh Bennett. Uh, or looking at the, the slogan or the buzzword for it at the moment is the edupreneurs, edupreneurs, entrepreneurs, edu educators, entrepreneurial educators and they're taking it right they're taking it right out there and you know they're they're basically setting themselves up as independent teachers of that topic and contracting themselves back into the universities, into the vocational sector and anyone else who's interested in it. Uh, and that seems to be the logical path that academic capitalism will go towards and it, and it speaks a little bit about, you know, they'll be hanging out in the gymnasium, standing on a soapbox saying, I'm the one you should learn from and um, depending on how many students they get is depending on whether or not they succeed with that or not. But that, none of that protects but the reason the institution existed. Isn't that how education has always been? I'm not you sure. You get in your soapbox and then, and get students for your class. I don't think the competition is there. No, well, I don't think I don't know. I, I've only been in its post '75, I suppose. But oh, I think I think I'm, I think uh, with tenure and things like that, that there was an idea of protecting a body of knowledge, whether there was social interest in it or not at that particular time. Um, I'd just like to note that Yuta has joined us. So Yuta, would you introduce yourself? Um, yeah, quickly. Um, I'm Yuta van Dinkpeger from Cancer Council Australia and I'm also here at the Recent Changes Camp. I, I'd be very interested in your um, observations and experiences both in Australia and elsewhere in terms of um, university education and research and other models that you might have um, seen. I can totally observe that, you know, like the, the capitalistic aspect of that and, um, you know, there was this thing, you know, we need to produce research in medical education and there was this push and then all the people were like, well, how can I teach and then do research? I'm already spending so much time um, developing a curriculum, you know, so where does that fit in? So, mm. yeah, it's very obvious. Um, but I still think that there are people out there that they are exceptional 
but there there are people out there that do both and that they um, you know engage in teaching and they engage in research and they they can do what they manage mm. but if the majority can't then the system definitely is going to crack like yeah it. oh it's already cracking i mean i mean yeah. You've, the, the problem we're dealing with uh, here and at other universities I've worked and um, know people in other institutions is um, the teachers slash researchers are always under pressure to figure out how to do what they do more efficiently. I mean, the, mm. the real money is in, the, in each student that enrols. Um, the added money is the funded research, which is fickle. You know, governments change, new targeted research areas, so they can't really rely on that type but of thing. But that opens up all sorts of cans of worms in terms of what is valued above other stuff. So the, re the focus yes, of yes, research, totally, you know, totally. that's a whole other... Yeah, research becomes yeah. propaganda, potentially, and stuff like that. Mm. And, and, but... Um, but you know, we go to these meetings, work uh, load management meetings and stuff, uh, and no one has made the budgets aren't transparent. Although with a little bit of research, you can make them transparent mm -hmm. because it's not that complicated. And that that's right across all sectors, I would argue. Yes, and um, but it's not hard to make them transparent because we're the the the, the amount of money that each student brings in is publicly available. You can ring up the university and find out how much it is to hire a lecture theatre and use that as your costing. You know, you can lay out a spreadsheet and and run it as a business type thing. What it basically comes down to, though, is that the university administration takes a mysterious 40 to 60 percent take, and then the actual teaching and the actual research runs on that. And the actual teaching, the actual research, is always under the pump to find more efficient ways. But the the 60 percent take is not itemised, so nobody can actually scrutinise that 60 percent take. So all but we can as, do but as a as a part of the system, don't you do your own? sums on what you think is cost effective and what it's yes yes I mean, exactly I've, I've had the frustration where you say okay well we're going to do a new course what's the business plan yeah, yeah. and academics will look at you blankly and say what are you talking about yes so don't you we do and and it doesn't add up like it, it works out you have to have a hundred students uh, for 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 a unit unit to be viable. But I feel a bit disoriented in a system where people might have chose to become educators, and um, then their core competency seems to be about business plans. Like it, so, it sort of seems a bit weird. Well, education costs money. Yeah, but we used to have administrators and managers who would do that, and then they, the teachers could focus, I suppose. Well, I I, um, I want well, to do e-learning. There's e no value in having sick people in hospitals, for instance. You know, it would be far more efficient if we only accepted. Um, well people into hospitals, wouldn't it? But then they'd leave it. <laughs> to some extent though it's a reality check. Um, and if you're proposing an idea, you want to take a particular approach, you maybe want to offer a new course, or you want to offer a course in a new way, it, I think it's just common sense to do that assessment of is this going to be a reasonable a return on investment? And that yeah. return on investment might be break even, or there might be some, yeah, uh, might not have a dollar value, but it might have spin offs in other areas that yeah, might yeah. attract students to keep down a particular path. Or the unit has a massive a return, path. and it, that is yeah. what's carrying the, the lost leading. Indeed. Units, yeah. and or you look at that, even the, the volume of work that's going to have to go into being ready to, to run that course. But, 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 whereas when you can get to that point, when you, when you are thinking of that point, why work for a university? I just find it astonishing that we're having this conversation about a, an organisation, an institution that is meant to be about foremost about education. I mean, 
I, I, I went for a walk at, at lunchtime and walked across the way and into the education building, which is where I was from 79 to, to 81. I remember it, it, the whole feeling of um, being a student at that time is just so different to what it must be now. Yeah. For them, I, you know, I can it's remember different. sitting in a tutorial room over there with Eric Wilmot and Michael Mansell having, you know, raves and debates. There's and no activism whatsoever at the student groups. And, you know, I, no. it, it, it just, you know, we seem to have lost our way. And, and Stefan was talking the other day about, you know, memories of when he, you know, he was teaching and people walking in off the street to be part of lectures and yeah, yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. We've lost that. Yeah. Well, now, especially when lectures are online, you have to have a password to get in. So there's no walking in off the street. No, when I was at uni, the first three rows were always um, members of, of the public mm. just there that was just part of it. You could walk in off the street and uh, attend a lecture. Yeah. And I used to think it was quite acceptable to do that mm. um, because it felt like education was about our society and, and the community and stuff. I, I don't feel like that. I used now. to do it in 96 and it was seen as odd. Well, can we get, can we get back to that? So there's, there's an inquiry into the NBN on at the moment by the... National Broadband Network. Lower House, National Broadband Network. And they've said, well, what use is this NBN thing to society? It's going to cost $42 billion. So I started writing a submission on my blog and said, what about education? Let's just have a principle that educational materials for anybody in Australia at any level of education are available free online. Well, it's up to government spending and priorities, isn't it? I mean, you know, if we, if our, if the government's priorities are, um, you know, defence, etc., then education is going to suffer. <laughs> well, I'm a citizen and I get to have my say and I'm going to suggest education should be a priority. Yes, but then, then the usual thing, and it's a it's a shallow response is no no we can't make education free because that's that's our bread and butter the students enroll to and we know it's false they, they enroll for the certificate the, the assessment and the piece of paper at the end accessing the lecture for free doesn't undermine that which again speaks the whole thing about the the, the notion of an education where I mean, I don't know if it's ever been thus, but of students who just, you know, want to do the assessment task, want to get the piece of paper, want to get out of there, which is antithetical to what an education yeah. is. Well, I'm like that. Why would I want to hang out in the university? Why am I here on a Saturday well, yeah. in the university? Well, again, this is one generation. Yeah. I absolutely am on this side of the fence in terms of that experience of the university. Yeah, so I'm coming around too. Sorry, Stephen. I'm coming around too with this. I was very excited about deinstitutionalizing or taking away a lot of that power of the institution or the monopoly on this business model, on this capitalistic idea, spinning people out as individual entrepreneurs contracting back in. But what that does is, and it's only a, it's only a flick of a switch away. We already hire sessional staff who essentially do that. All we need now is to give the sessional staff the copyright to the unit, then they're basically contracting. But what that does is dissolves away. The, the, the reason for having the institution mm. and that's to protect bodies of knowledge beyond fickle market trends and all that sort of stuff and, and out of the reach of, of government propaganda. And a lot like of that. public dollars go into a lot of this stuff. So Tom, is that what you're talking about? Where public doll anything that public dollars are spent on open and available and is that what you mean? Well, the, these people the principle has now been included in a soft sort of way with federally funded research where 
at the moment I think it's only a suggestion that the results of the research should be available, published, free online. Mm. So why not the same thing for education? Mm. It's and not far off. If, if the government pays a university or a TAFE or a school to prepare some educational material, why isn't that freely available mm. to all? But you prepare for the, the, the argument is already, uh, the government sponsors this university, I don't know if this is accurate, something like 70%. So then the argument becomes, well, we only make 70% available. And then there's the peak body um, knowledge commercialisation Australasia. It's all about patenting research and stuff like that. And they make the argument that patenting research and getting it into the commercial sector is the process of making it available, plus returning big profits to the public investment and all this sort of stuff. And when you look at it, actually, no, no, it's a gamble. It's like a trust luck thing about patents and sitting back for 10 years before the money starts coming in, if ever. And it's so all what an does accident. the public get for their investment then? And I'm wondering, even in the vet in the vet space and the uni space. So with all, I don't know what the dollars are, but there's, there's a lot of dollars that go into both of those sectors. What is the current return on investment, if you want to use that language? Well, we do use that language, sad as it is. But, yeah. My car breaks down, I can take it to a garage and it gets fixed. The air conditioning breaks down, I can ring up someone, they come in and they can fix it because they've been trained in the vet sector. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's a way to put the return. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well, the it's return is meeting its goal in terms of the people with skills being available. Well, we need so plumbers because they provide civilization. Yeah, but they may not be Australian plumbers. We, we may, Australia may go to the global market or in, in the big time, and we'll just start uh, migrating plumbers. Well, that's well, we do that kind of thing already. That's that okay. That's a question for the education sector in Australia. When you can get your education online, how will Australian institutions compete with low-cost ones in India and China? There'll be niches, you know, they'll be like um, mm -hmm. studying salty, arid regions in ecology. Obviously, Australia's the place for that, um, but in terms of masters of business, What's why would Australia... What's interesting to me about the trading sort of stuff, and I don't know if I'm just making this up or just so it's an opinion or, a, you know, it might be false, is... Um, the degree to which um, licences and things are creeping into the, the regulation. So th it seems to me that there are lots of occupations where licensing is coming in as one of those um, gates. You mean industry-based licensing? Practitioner yes, licensing. on top of the required qualification. Now I understand that in electrical trades because it's, it's always been like that. But just in recent years I've noticed that popping up in a lot of trades that I wouldn't have imagined life-threatening you know so it's sort of interesting to me does that mean that some part of the system is failing like why would you need to introduce a license if um, industries have agreed to a certain set of competencies and stuff I'm actually genuinely confused by that. I think on a Australian school you've got to be a registered teacher as well as have your qualification. I think that's mm. the feature of Australia to be honest I think they create a certificate for everything on the planet yeah, it's really interesting for me as a German, and I also, I would also be very curious how the um, university education has changed in Germany recently because our education was free, and they have just um, introduced student fees, but not not as high as the ones that are here, um, probably three or four years ago. Mm. But um, it's a, it was a very different feeling for me when I was studying in Germany and then I came to Melbourne and studied at the University of Melbourne. You could really sense the difference. Yeah. And the student fees, how are student fees affecting that, that vocational education training sector? 
It used to be quite low. You'd get a quite a hefty subsidy to study. But I mean, are people walking out of TAFE education, for example, with ten, twenty, even thirty thousand dollars of debt? Well, there's a system in vet now called Vet Fee Help, which is, you know, basically like HEX, the same as HEX. Right, so, so that going there that are fee, fully fee-paying courses that people can essentially get a loan for. Mm. But um, no, I, I I was interested going through the process yesterday of of enrolling in uh, a TAFE course and really, really pleased to be able to tick a box that said reason for studying personal development, you know, amongst all the other things that is still there, still there. hidden it's away, amazing. even though you, you, mm-hmm. you've got to do a certificate to do it, mm. um, uh, you know, it, it's still there, so it's still clearly kind of uh, acknowledged and, and respected mm. as a reason why people do enrol in Kirsty, I'd be interested mm. in your observations at your, mm. uh, whatever it's called, I know that changes its name all the time, what is it at the moment? <laughs> Tasmanian Polytechnic. Polytechnic. Mm. What patterns have you seen in terms of people um, studying for vocation or love or interest as opposed to you know, school shortages or mm-hmm. what there are places for and that sort of stuff? Have you seen trends that are interesting? Probably not significant trends there, it, and it does vary from subject area to subject area. So, thinking of ceramics, there'd be a much higher proportion of people who'd be looking at it as a personal development, personal interest type course. Um, but are there better those than courses? Because I'm surprised that, 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 that it's still there for you, mm. actually. Um, because my observation has been that over the years there appears to be less and less that I'm able to access for reasons of genuine interest rather than... Um, Certainly true in South Australia. Mm. What is true? That. Those, all of those sorts of courses are now handed across to the ACE sector. Adult community mm. education. Right. Is that the case with you too, Robin? Is your course yeah. within ACE? However, I used to work in the ACE sector in New South Wales, which is a vet provider and uh, with a background in adult literacy. So I saw a point, there was a point at which we moved from um, grandmothers or people with an uh, intellectual disability, etc., being able to simply enrol to improve their literacy skills, to be able to read to their grandkids or to be able to drive a car or whatever it was, to a point where you could not enrol. In fact, now in New South Wales, to the best of my understanding, there is no adult literacy provision that is not accredited. So you cannot uh, what about the go to provider. Are the in New South Wales they have the or did have the outreach programs? No, they're still accredited. You'd still be enrolled, even though, you know, it's a... a, So what are the implications of it being accredited as opposed to non-accredited? Instead of it being uh, needs and interest-based, it is course-based, so you still have Mm -hmm. to... And the bums on seat stuff happens. The study that you do is uh, designed around an accredited um, Mm -hmm. uh, certificate Mm -hmm. curriculum. And um, so you will be undertaking study and activity that uh, potentially is not where your needs and interests are or is beyond that. So, I mean, and that just, it, it went, went, there wasn't even a whimper. It just changed from one year to the next. Yeah. Well, people don't understand, like these systems are so complicated that quite often you don't have the words you need. There was a whimper in New South Wales, the outreach 
people, um, particularly at Sydney University, they're a bit of an old guard, uh, and this is going back six years from me now, I can't remember, but Jude Cook, um, she, she was tapped into a network who were putting up protests to the takeover of the adult community education who represented that economically rationalised approach to education, taking over a lot of the um, outreach programs and doing what Robin's describing. So Tom, this inquiry thing that you're, the submission that you're putting in, would this address these sorts of things? Would you also see dollars going towards supporting the use of facilities and resources and all that kind of stuff? Well, one of the beauties of the National Broadband Network is that it's so spectacularly expensive that it would make minor educational initiatives look relatively cheap. <laughs> In comparison, how many billion would you like? Well, there's a business model. Um, it's, in a way, it's an excuse to address you know, social issues and requirements while everybody's attention is focused on the technology. Mm. Um, the medical profession is doing it, aren't they? They justify it in terms of you'll be able to get medical mm. consultation by the NBN. There's a telehealth. Uh, mm. So the education sector, where are they talking on that on that front? Yes, mm. where's where's the education sector in this discussion? And I mean the the education sector has a lot of good stories to tell in terms of using technology to provide education cost effectively and conveniently. We're sitting in a beautiful, shiny, new Open teaching centre, yeah. teaching space. Teaching Commons. Teaching, teaching Commons. So what's at the scenario? the University of Canberra. What's your scenario for how this would be used under your plan? Uh, under under my, um, my plan, um, we would have something called the Australian Learning Commons, which would be the collection of all the online educational material in Australia, which anybody could use for free. And then we would have campuses, um, most of which would be what are now conventional schools with school kids. Some of them, probably the upper secondary ones, would after hours be dual use as TAFEs and adult learning areas and university campuses. So the idea would be you could essentially go to the nearest you could do your education online if you wanted to, but you probably need to talk to people. Would they be volunteers? Um, the, the students? No, the people helping. The you content's would, not going to run all this. You can, you, can, you can tap into the, sorry Tom, you can tap into the existing university infrastructure. University mm. of Canberra doesn't exploit the three roles of an academic. They do the, the research, the teaching, and then there's this one community engagement, which is pretty much ignored. I think ANU has community engagement. Every academic has to report something on community engagement, do they? Ah, uh, yes, and although in a lot of cases the ANU's community engagement is being on SBS News. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Commenting on the Middle East. But I don't know how this happens, <laughs> that the people who pay for all this have ended up being like the social inclusion, uh, you know, segmented bit off to the side that needs to be watered occasionally. I, I, I sort of find that like like a sleight of hand that's astonishing. And I don't know whether I'm just misunderstanding it, but it seems that well, I'm, it's I'm more and a more a minority group rather, or a minority idea rather than, you know, like a mainstream um, client group. I'm not a professional educator. I'm an IT professional. I'm a member of my professional body, and when we think the government or whoever should be doing something, we get together and we write the policy that we think the nation or the world should have. And I think... 
That's what we need to do. The vocational education sector and the university sector need to do the same thing. If you think there's something we should be doing, the natural thing is the community would look to you and say, well, what is it we should be doing? You're the experts. Mm. So Tell us I would what have to thought do. that that happens, so that doesn't happen. It, it does doesn't. Happen. I've tried it. I've tried it with intellectual property. This university is re reviewing its intellectual property policy, and that same happened in New Zealand. That's opportune. Slipped in, helped write a policy, and they just adopted it, and it became a little bit of a showcase. But here, um, you've got to be pretty hard up, uh, hardcore, to see it through, because it gets ignored, and it gets ignored, and worse in the education sector, it gets ignored by your fellow educators. So we wrote this, what we thought was an ideal IP policy, not being lawyers and stuff like that, but it's basically Creative Commons attribution as a default with opt-out, you know, you know the story, recognising um, Indigenous autonomy to this concept and supporting their, the development of their own approach to this thing. Uh, as complicated as that, but you know, it's, there's a few words in there about that. But um, we, we contacted uh, NTEU, the National Tertiary Education Union, uh, saying, how about this be adopted as um, the NTU's uh, platform for intellectual property? I mean, the elements are all academics own their intellectual property. If they use the university as a platform to present it, so lecterns, lecture theatres, uh, research projects, then they're expected to adopt the Creative Commons Attribution Licence. If there's a reason they can't, such as they're working with Indigenous knowledge or patents knowledge or, or any other reason, there's an opt-out clause. And that opt-out clause alerts the intellectual property office and they're more carefully managing their intellectual property. Rather than broadcasting across the whole institution, grabbing everything, hoping they can commercialise something, they're getting very targeted alerts about what's commercialisable and working with that, whereas the rest um, becomes open and shared. My, I'm just completely disheartened that none of the other universities, people interested in this, came in. None of the other lawyers who were working for Creative Commons came in and led their weight. I would go along to the, the um, knowledge commercialisation meeting and get absolutely hammered by commercial lawyers who I'm pretty proud to say I stood up against and pointed out the flaws in theirs, but they still laughed at me because I had no lawyer credentials. And, and no one in the sector stepped up to it. And well, I'm the, pretty pissed off about it. The ANU quietly adopted a yes, they did. open access policy yeah. last year, yeah. um, as did the Australian government. Uh, yeah, I say so myself, exactly. but yeah, they did. They did. But then, they did. so that means, let's say, content's free, content's inert. So that that doesn't sort of solve the problem, does it? Oh no, but it sets in place. It sets in place a process for those mm. one percent who can take their content and practice onto platforms and not be worried about being pulled back by. You know, some bean counter who says, no, you can't operate on that platform, we've got our own platform and that's copyright and blah, blah, blah. So, well, I, I suggest use the tools you've got, and if you're an educator, the tools you've got are being able to communicate and be able to explain things to people to do what you think needs to be done. Um, and we are now have all this fancy online technology to help us, help us do it. Well, there's a report into the VET community by the Productivity Commission. They're uh, seeking input at the moment. Are they? Tell yeah. us more about that. Oh, well, the uh, Productivity Commission's been uh, asked to uh, have, a look at, uh, have a look at VET. It's a similar thing to the, uh, what's the higher education uh, review, the Bradley Review? There's it's the Bradley Review, there's yeah. another one coming up which is reviewing the funding of higher education. Yeah. And then there's another one going on right now, the Excellence in Research Australia. 
pro, um, uh, list, the, the uh, list is being reviewed and this is an awesome do know, opportunity. Do you know what, mm. I think a lot of these reviews don't have very... They're foregone conclusions. Well, if that's true, it's only true probably because a lot of people who might have a voice don't get to input. Got a input. So maybe in terms of wikis and you know informal, maybe we need to help make these things more explicit in terms of how these systems work and at different points in the system at which you can express your opinion. Yes, it does seem to me there's not a lot of, in, like say, Tom, you're talking about us having a voice, but I actually think that as a sector we are very um, unvocal. Well, that's, that's your problem if you're not being vocal. Uh, I've just looked up the VET inquiry and submissions closed 28th of February um, this year. When does the Excellence in Research Australia uh, um, consultation finish? That? You know, I didn't learn that at school, so well, the education system has to... You've got to, be in, you've got to be in it, you've got to be in the loop. You've got to be listening to the VTE podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right on. <laughs> I'm interested in you. You're sort of the session leader, and you sort of started off with um, setting out the, uh, you know, outlines of the problem. How's it going? How's what going? The the questions that you brought to this in terms of setting this up as a session about vet. Well, we've only look. That doesn't matter whether or not we stay with my initial comments or thoughts as to where the session might go, but we do incidentally just come back to it with this comment about the Productivity Commission and Tom's suggestion, well it's, that's your problem if we don't, I mean we just got to establish our own forums, make our voices known. I think we're a little bit hamstrung by the usual things, time over committed in other areas. There's mm. also that um, issue that in the, in the vet sector, probably more than the uni sector, is that we are kind of supposed to behave ourselves and not make any comment about things that might be construed as political. And I know that clams a lot of people up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that goes on in the university mm. too. Yeah. And yeah. the other thing is the but role stuff. Like, can you just speak as a human or must you have a role, a hat that you can put on that gives you a particular... Mm. Well, this is where it's kind of interesting and we kind of alluded to this at lunchtime that and Stefan and I have both established wikis and other online presences I, I think mainly because it's just quicker and simpler to do it as an individual but there are advantages to that too because you, you become, you develop this online presence which represents your opinions and your professional practice and kind of years later your organisation finds out you're doing stuff and you, you should be doing that over here. Well, sorry, the horse is bolted. So, <laughs> I guess, yeah, Tom, I take your point. You know, it's, there are reasons why we could say that we're not being listened to, but there are reasons why we're reluctant to put ourselves too far out there. Maybe it's simply just a matter of blogging. You, you discussed the big group blog notion a couple of years ago. Trying to work out what other people think. What I would love to do is actually do a review, an informal review, where we actually target normal I know what people think. What most normal practitioners will tell you, I don't have time to do anything except satisfy the audit. Yeah. Period. Yeah. That's it. Our system is hamstrung and paralysed by this auditing accountability bullshit. But that then perpetuates the system of certain voices driving the, the design. And we all have allowed it to happen. Yeah. And we all continue to, to bow to the audit. Bow to the auditor. And only when I heard someone, you know, they could say this a month before they retire, when they quote said, I will not be dictated to by an effing cleric. 
because that's what essentially auditors are and they rule the system. Lecturers don't have a say because unless you satisfy the auditor, you could yeah, be out of a job or you'll be brought really, you know, um, sort of That's who runs our system. Pawns in yeah, minor pawns, but in everything except influence. Well, Robin, you've and got they to call the shots. <laughs> do you want to change the system? I can't do it alone, Rose. So what would we need to do? Like, this is an interesting idea. Like, you're so right about the NBN. The time yeah, engage in the topical. In a time of major change and all these reviews, maybe there is an opportunity to carve a voice and and, and not only that, but maybe um, transmit this information to others who could also. Well, I did suggest a group a couple of years ago. Remember that? Mm. A, a what? A, a group blog. Oh, a group blog. A good strategy is always to engage in something that is actually something new and that has space. So if the environment is very rigid and very regulated that you're finding yourself in, you should use platforms that are actually currently not used yeah. to leverage that rather than yeah. going we need to get rid of the auditors so to say, just yeah. go and look at something that hasn't been uh, yeah. kind of used Don't, yeah, go yeah. through the window instead yeah. of trying to fight the blocked door yeah. and it might be a wiki Robin, second, what, was, what was the uh, What's the program? I was in New Zealand at the time, but it was that massive giveaway of laptops and... Oh, the DER, Digital Education mm. Revolution. Yeah. Digital yeah. Education Revolution. There was a platform opportunity, I guess, but there's no way I'm engaging on that. As soon as I saw the, the videos, the the platform that the politicians speak of, I've got to say a bit the same for the NBN. I, yeah. I don't really want to be part of that. Yeah. No. Um, but I realise there's an opportunity to be part of it and there's a reason too, but it's it's just... Well, if you don't want to be mm. part of it, then you you can't really yeah. complain about what happened. Uh, well, we only only complain in well. The reason I do is the only reason I complain. Point out the floor and say, here's an opportunity. Do it completely outside. Just don't there, engage. Yeah, you don't have to work fully within the system. I mean, the best mm. example is where there was a Senate inquiry into internet regulation, and we wrote a submission online publicly. Yep. And I represented the Australian Computer Society. Somebody else represented the Internet Society of Australia. Yep. Other bodies. We essentially collaborated on our submissions online. Yep. What we didn't know were staff of the inquiry were reading everything we were on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Find that out, yeah. We turned up to present and got a very good hearing because everybody had read it all before. Excellent. Even the other side of the debate from the Anti-Pornography League mm. were informed. Um, it worked fairly well. Peter Chen did his PhD on that style of process mm -hmm. and it's something you can do with things like wikis and blogs now. Mm -hmm. And if you're afraid to speak because you have a job somewhere, you just join an organisation and speak with that hat on. Mm. The other thing that concerns me isn't just um, practitioners speaking. I think there's too many professional experts and we've lost the whole thing about um, having multiple voices, like voices of students and people in the community and actually like the experts don't have all the answers. So we don't have mechanisms for, like you, you'd go talk to someone in the street and ask them how the university sector works or how the vet sector works, they wouldn't have a clue, that they're, they're completely confused. They never asked, I, don't, I mean I, I might be wrong, but it seems to me that they never actually asked. Um, well there is a little bit, Kate, Kate Lundy's office, I mean everyone writes Kate Lundy's energy, uh, it's unfortunate she's the only one, 
but she ran the um, what was it called? The public forums. Um, Web 2.0, government Web 2.0. Oh, public sphere. Public sphere, which is a direct reference to Habermas. Um, well, Habermas is concepts of deliberation open to all participation. But are they doing stuff like that in schools and? No, that's yeah. But public spaces. Like yeah, they still spaces. fumble the ball a bit. I don't think they'd read Habermas, Habermas enough because <laughs> they they. Um, <laughs> you wouldn't inflict that on the population, <laughs> would you? They, they set it up. Mandatory reading, reading of not, Habermas. Not entirely, but largely in Parliament hmm. House, right and there, is setting up Habermas. a dynamic. <laughs> the, the first one was. Well, or was it the second one? Was it the ANU in a room similar to the one we're in mm. now? But it's still a done. ANU, Parliament House, even University of Canberra, are different to old art school. Or, you know, they call the, the scout balls they set up in the 1920s for people, you know, that's, that's a different dynamic. Or go out to Braidwood and set it up. See, well, scout balls is, is completely different because it seems to me that, um, you know, imagine being a cleaner or a security guard or something. Like, how, how are you ever going to have like a voice in any of that? How are you ever going to express your needs or your aspirations in terms of you know, career paths or vocation or anything like that? Or at least and I think a lot of this stuff is very, very um, sort of hidden. It, it's yes, open, it, but how... It, this, this material is not hidden. If somebody mentions here, oh, there's some inquiry in vocational education, I type that into the book into the search engine comes the thing it says when submissions are due mm. yes I know but it's more than that I mean I you've got to be a certain you've got to be a certain person to mm. yeah, it takes but aren't it could be better. It, I mean, and this is where community education and outreach, I think, is to do a fantastic job in that that was a vehicle for yeah, um, feedback. All the way down the well line, you'd have the academic accessing the primary material and putting it in the plan language so that the practitioner, let's say this in TAFE, an outreach program, could then take that language to their um, community workers and in Indigenous communities in rural New South Wales. So that, that channel was all being used, but I, I don't think that channel's there. Well, just I don't think it is. And go and do it. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, it's not I find that if you if you have a point of view to put, um, bodies such as governments will at least listen. Okay. Well, say. explain then my experience with the IP policy then. Like, uh, perhaps it's just a shit policy, but the few people I've seen looking at it say it's a great policy. Uh, but I haven't been able to get to the point you're describing. Ah, uh, well, um, perhaps. You needed to put a suit on first. Yeah, no, that's well, I did, and I got hassled big time. I'll never do it again. Years ago, working <laughs> in the welfare sector with, um, you know, what would now be called, you know, like disadvantaged people, and I remember they used to access uh, tape outreach and community education, all that sort of stuff. And what was important about that is. It, the, they might have been doing basket weaving and nowadays basket weaving, you know, the Productivity Commission would never allow it. But the basket weaving courses were not about basket weaving, they were really about confidence building, they were about yeah, literacy. Yeah. Or, remember, that wasn't the CS, what was it called, those centres that people used to go to that was considered frivolous? Mm. I saw so many... So I can't tell you how many of us all come through that system and end up in the vocational sector, end up doing building up to careers and viable lives and relationships in their communities. And yeah, yeah. And, and the O sector mm. had to play that game, you know. I mean, the only way to get stuff like that through was to call it VET. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you, you called it VET because you don't know where something, you know, I, I'm doing ceramics this year, I might end up making a, a fortune as being a ceramic artist, who knows? Mm -hmm. And that's still and seeing it through the lens of productivity. I, I'm remembering mm -hmm. people who, for the first time in their lives, uh, might have been developing relationships where they then felt 
were able to access services that would help them deal with um, you know, life issues they had in the past, all, all these other things that weren't related to productivity but were mm. absolutely related to mental health, physical health, mm. well-being. And the change, that, Rose, happened, the, the, the change happened in the mid-90s. Mid mm. I mean, I, I, I worked in adult literacy and, Michael, did you work with SIP? Did you, are you a SIP person? There was, I, there I was, was a program SIP person. in the early 90s called SIP Special, Special, Intervention, Special program. Intervention Program. It sounds horrific, but it, it, there was loads of, loads of money and there was recognition that for a lot of really um, disengaged learners who'd been, who'd been through you know, horrific educational pasts, I used to say it, takes, it would take us six months to get a person to a point where they felt good about themselves as a learner again. And SIP allowed that to, to happen. And it allowed us to drive an hour and a half up into the, the mountains on the north coast and work with Indigenous communities and, you know, helping people get licences and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, with a change of government and it was just switched off. And, and after which point you had to prove that... Um, you know, they had acquired a certain number of competencies within a certain number of weeks. Yeah, so what, I suppose it all went downhill from there. And that's yeah, translated we can trigger that point. 1996, John Howard, and everything that's after that. Translated into employers. Before the podcast started, we were talking about apprenticeships. How once upon a time it was considered um, something you did, like uh, master builders and all those sorts of people would just, as a matter of course, take on apprentices. Whereas now it's much more, you know, the economic rationalism. Now I can only take on an apprentice because I need. You know, them to learn how to do blah, this like tiny segment of an apprenticeship. So that whole um, social contract stuff has mm. disappeared from, um, you know, at the mm. discourse, and, and not just with the education providers and the systems, but even in mm. the community. We've got so it must be that the the builders are disconnected from the TAFE sector, and they're not they're not uh, part or don't feel part of that process and therefore never realise, perhaps never realise they have an opportunity to think about their social role and everything like that. This, this, wasn't a, this wasn't something that happened, this was a deliberate policy decision. What do you mean? I mean, you made a joke about basket weaving and the Productivity Commission, so I typed in basket weaving and the Productivity Commission <laughs> and have a document here discussing the role of basket weaving uh, and the Disability Discrimination Act from a Productivity Commission inquiry. Of what year? Uh, let's have a look. What year? I, I, I sometimes wonder if maybe mm. all the... Was it underwater basket weaving? <laughs> but, but with all the... Um, all the bureaucracy that surrounds a lot of this stuff and all the different players at, you know, local and, you know, all the... I wonder sometimes if it's become so complicated for employers that that was part of the reason that they've backed off because it just gets too complicated. Maybe it was easier in the olden days just to bring on a couple of lads and, you know, I don't know. Was it simpler? Well, I'd always assume that, you know, the whole purpose of the national training system was to have uh, consistency, accountability and uh, a unified system so that if you you were trained at one uh, institution that it would be accepted by another and it would be you know, there'd be benchmarking of, of the quality of the education. But the, no, 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 no. The key word there is training. It's the national training system, not education. No, that's true. And it, it reflected, I suppose, more alignment with industry needs. But, um, I mean, I... I 
Uh, there are you know, still people in our organisation who don't accept competency-based training. I, I, I once heard one head teacher tell me, oh, look, I train my dog, I teach my son. And uh, he said that's the difference, and I'll, I'll never be a trainer, I'll always be a teacher. So maybe what's happened is that in the vet world that we came into, or the ACE world, I guess it was late 1980s, early 90s, you could still be an educator and have a, a proper place and you felt what you did and the way you thought was valued. It's changed so much that it only really now accommodates trainers, that people who and think like us, yeah, who have more highfalutin notions of education being a whole process, a holistic thing, there's just no place for that anymore. And maybe that's why I get so kind of upset when I address this issue and talk about it because it's partly me failing to realise there is no place for that approach anymore really. You, you find your place, you squirm your way in, you kind of get yourself entrenched but really it's a lot bit like yeah, you dressing up in a suit and getting hammered by lawyers if you made it really public what you were on about. Yes, and, uh, but I'm not, I'm not sad about that. Um, uh, because I enjoy Illich's deschooling society idea so much. This is it's been a long time coming, and it's about time. Thank you. And right at the same time that we've got the technology that will facilitate the connection between a person who naturally wants to teach something and a person who naturally wants to learn something. And that's not to say that that learning only happens online. That's to say that the meeting happens online, the initial dialogue happens online, and then like us, they meet face to face and go from there. Well, I'm astonished at the degree to which young people are using YouTube and other, like they are learning what they need to learn in yeah. spite of our system. Totally. So my only real objection is the buckets of money that go into these systems. I'd like to see those buckets of money reviewed to see why aren't we supporting practices and natural behaviours and, and following we don't trust it. Everybody shakes their head about de-schooling and homeschooling and informal learning and we never, we never reinvigorated the, um, the community arts colleges. You know those halls that are in every town that just get used for old women knitting clubs? And, oh, oh, set yes, up they're going to mention in my draft submission. All oh, right. Yeah. Um, schools of Art. Schools of Art, yeah. thank you. Schools they were Art. institutes. Yeah, yeah. they were called institutes in South Australia, yeah. 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 All right. Right. We saw them when we went around South Australia, every town yeah, that was. Every, every every the Institute. Yeah. Yeah. And not to mention the, the Boy Scouts and the Ventures and all that sort of stuff and all, all the role they have, uh, ignoring the uniformity and all that martial kind of metaphor, but there's some mm. good stuff that goes on in there. So the Mechanics Institute's provided a lending library and a place for men to go that didn't involve drinking in the evenings. Cool. And hopefully they educate themselves and get better skills. Mm. So, yeah. And I mean that... <coughs> that is, I mean, education isn't all about about um, getting a job, no. but it is partly about Taking those, role. those things. Mm. And Taking I suggest, if if we want the education sector in Australia to be different, you've got it. That's the only option. Yeah, you, what you're saying is totally right. And I don't think your uh, your uh, approach about um, about the educator and the and the learner getting together outside the institution so much is, is I think that's traditional, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, yeah. but we but then the the critique is that, that we set up institutions to take over that role. And the, so the people who would naturally think oh, I'd like to teach this, ah oh, but I won't because people go to TAFE for that. Right. So they've they've taken out the the um, natural way of that happening. But that's come back now because we've got a technology you know, if I'm in a small town of like 60 potential people who are interested in this thing, 
the likelihood of me actually connecting with someone enough to teach and learn this particular interest topic is next to nothing. But, it but with the internet, then it becomes a lot more possible. It's the same with love affairs happening, you know. And all but wouldn't it be good if there was a way of actually responding to the market literally? So if the market is basket weaving and you know people are contributing, and, and that's the skill that people want to learn. Okay, 2004 was the productivity inquiry that mentioned basket weaving yes. in relation to the Disability Discrimination Act. Yes. Somebody mentioned, asked me before. But I, thank you. I, what I'm saying is, why wouldn't there be ways of, of you? Responding to the market in terms of what people want to learn and the skills that might be needed in a particular area, why isn't there a more fluid and natural way for well, that to happen? In you know, South Australia, the WEA still mm. exists, and yeah. that's exactly how it works. When they've got 20 know. people, they run. But that's look right. at our state and territory training systems. How do they make, because they're the ones that are given all the money in terms of driving this stuff, how do they make their decisions on what to fund? Industry engagement. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Actually, I was interested, I mean, you, what you're talking about, learners and uh, um, teachers coming together independent of institutions, and, uh, you know, that, it's sort of evocative of the idea of the sort of disintermediation of, of education. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't, the internet and social media does provide the means for that to happen. But the culture is for it is not there. Yeah. No, but it, it could start to happen. We're seeing it happen mm. in lots of other areas. I mean, you know, like the music industry or the or the, the movie news, industry. The uh, news industry. Photographers. Uh, photographers. Photographers, mm. yeah. So we're starting Designers. Designers, yeah. Print, Entrepreneurs. Yeah. You've got yeah. that rapid prototyping and open source production open source. process. Mm. Uh, that's, you know, that's right from coat hooks with a 3D printer through to build your own tractor for eight times cheaper mm. than you can get it from China. Mm. And this is something you could teach people. I just, mm. I just, but they are like this is going on, and it's so startling to see it's so awesomely well, happening. What not Tom's in institutions. saying is that we've already got a significant amount of our combined resources going towards this thing, and we should be taking advantage of shaping some of that because it is ours together. I think uh, the vet sector is an interesting example <coughs> here because you can set yourself up as an, a registered RTO that's basically a one, two-person operation, and you can choose to be very niche in what you, what you, uh, what skills you deliver and what elements of a training package you even deliver. Yes. Uh, so that is possible and we're starting to see that more and, and more. The, 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 and they're a big threat to our institution, TAFE. Yeah. The small niche providers are a real threat to us. Yes, and I think what's really mm. interesting about that is also the people who sit there and say, okay, we're all one or two person band. I don't need to be an RTO. The R doesn't mm. mean anything. It doesn't mm. add anything. Anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. The R gives you entree into certain areas of funding, but for a lot of what we're talking about in terms of um, the type of learning that's driven by the individual, driven by a desire, driven by a passion, and the teaching driven by similar reasons, doesn't need that R whatsoever. Yes, and, and also in the corporate sector, it they doesn't need the R. No. They don't so want the R. They, they actually don't care. What they want is the responsive... And that's this Josh... Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you know that I wrote? I just I remembered his name. Josh, Josh Bennett. It's an MBA, personal MBA is his thing. Not my style. I mean, it's an interesting approach. It's very marketed, America style, and everything. But, mm -hmm. uh, but he claims to be in six-figure digits, sustaining himself teaching people who are just interested in business skills and mm -hmm. personal MBA. Obviously, the MBA is there to hit search results. Fantastic. Um, and then, but then there's that. But then there's places like um, the open source ecology 
gang, these really quirky guys in Kansas who've um, gone down an extreme open source sustainability or, in their words, post-scarcity post civilization, building a tool set for post-scarcity civilization. It's, it's, mm -hmm. in, it's incredible. Then you've got the uh, Permaculture Research Institute um, who've been teaching permaculture for, well, 20 years. Mm -hmm. And it's only very recent that TAFE decided to start teaching permaculture mm. and it's quite different to the permaculture design certificates and these are now, uh, permaculture has now become um, recognised in the farming community. Farmers can go and get um, um, credits to go to education courses for land and stuff like that and the permaculture design certificate is recognised in that. But is that still, in America? No, no, it's here in Australia. Yeah. But the mm. TAFE sector is still dragging its feet with this, so something's gone so wrong. They'd be with tied to training packages. Like, like I'm assuming that what they're given is. No, there are training. Yes, there are training packages. But like you say, even with the the R yeah. is relevant. So are the training packages, for better or for worse. Yeah, but yeah. You, you can uh, you, you can offer whatever you like. But if you want funding, it's got to be accredited. Yeah. Yes, so, uh, I mean, that, that's yeah. the issue. I mean, I, I, exactly I, right. I still runs hobby courses, mm. but they are fully fee paying. Well, it's not yeah. not exactly right there, Robin, because that farmers one, you don't have to be accredited. Um, actually, you do, but it's not accredited in the terms of the. Um, what do you, I keep forgetting the names of that training competency training packages and NTIS NTIS which may well get funding from another from another source, source but you're yeah. in that list yeah you know yeah. And unless there is unless there is government usually government funding from one source or another then it's fee paying and as soon as it's fully fee paying you're cutting out a whole whack of you know potential. Uh, learners mm -hmm. from the system. Not necessarily, uh, because if your fee um, subsidises the next person. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. my other comment about you know, what you're saying about mm. uh, you know, the potential for people to access um, online education anytime, anywhere, of whatever they want is, is fine, that's very true. But again, there's a huge um, cohort of potential learners who are excluded from that because they lack the basic literacy, and I include digital literacy yep. skills, mm -hmm. to be able to uh, know where to go, to be able to navigate that, those kinds of materials, to be able to access and you know, etc. Et yeah, we're still got to deal with that, and that's and, and, and that's mm, face to face. Totally. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know about and that even because I would say my brother-in-law is an example of this. Right, he's, he's literate. He finished his HSC in a Singapore, you know, very nice Singapore university and stuff. Come back to Australia, 17 years old. The only thing he can imagine in terms of education is university. So right there is a uh, problem. He has he, the world's his oyster in terms of how he could learn things. Actually, what he could learn. can I ask the question? Can anyone simply explain what's going to happen in terms of the new vet regulator and university and incorporating and sort of putting that together? Has anyone got any clear information on how that's going to work? Okay, yeah. just thought I'd ask. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, other than it's coming. I mm -hmm. don't think anybody has any clear explanation. Why don't you? whip up a Wikipedia entry on that topic, explain yeah. it all to us. Expand it and stuff. Um, because I doubt even the people who are working out how to do it understand it. Well, it seems to me that there were all these interim things being built, which to me seems a bit crazy. There's something going on here that the University of Canberra is setting up a polytechnic. 
uh, and there's a, there's a crush, uh, not crush, there's a Canberra Institute of Technology, a la TAFE, just across the road, already established. Yeah. What's it's that about? It's interesting, a number of jurisdictions are starting to change their TAFEs into polytechnics. It's or blurring different. of boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. It's happening everywhere. Well, we've, 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 we've become a higher education provider. Really? Mm, we're offering our first Thank degree so uh, this semester, actually. Mm. Congratulations. Who's, who's the, <laughs> so well, who's the um, regulator the of the degree? <laughs> it's not an industry skills council. No, no, no. It's a, it's, a, it's a special body in itself. It's an academic body. Created locally? No. No, no, it's a, I'm not quite sure exactly how the process, it's a very rigorous process anyway, but there is a, a review board that's got a very extensive uh, process that you have to check all the boxes and tick all the boxes. You've got all these things in place, including having a dean. We've found a dean. Well, which degrees? Uh, at the moment it'll be, the first one will be uh, interior design at uh, Enmore. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, and Kirsty, what about you? Because you're in a perfectly sized jurisdiction in that you, you're all very sort of you and the university mm-hmm. are very closely related. What's happening there? Some more stuff? Um, over the last couple of years, um, where we've also been catering to the Year 11 and 12 vocational students. Um, but that was through the creation of the Skills Institute when TAFE was split in two, wasn't it? Yeah, through the creation of three institutions. Yes. <laughs> the Polytechnic and Skills Institute looking at the vocational sector and looking at pathways for students as they're moving through the vocational sector towards university. Um, I haven't heard any talk about offering of um, higher ed qualifications through our organisation. No. But I was just thinking about the University of Canberra and Canberra Institute of Technology thing. It may be that Canberra, of in- Canberra CIT is interested in entering the market and you know, doing that under their own banner rather than doing it as a, a subsection of UC. I think a lot of there's people a lot are of doing partnerships where they're giving each other's politics in yeah. those partnerships and, and it happens. relationships. It happens elsewhere. So, for example, I do teaching for the Australian Computer Society for postgraduate education, and you can do that through the Australian Computer Society, which isn't a university but now those courses are offered under the Open Universities Australia banner there as well. So who who creates those courses? Who who stamps those courses as courses? A sponsoring university. A sponsoring university, okay. In terms of the Open Open Universities Australia, uh, they're they're an association of universities um, and and in fact, this just reminded me, I've sent an email to them and Twitter and I got instant feedback, instant responses from them on Twitter. The question was, if I teach a unit and own the copyrights to the unit in a university that's not associated with the Open University of Australia, how do I offer that unit in the universities at Open University of Australia? And no response. So I guess, well, what do you mean? Does this mean they have never considered that question? Yeah, I'm a bit but the, I, I guess the point is there that it's... There is a level of flexibility in education where you can do that outside that system. Um, but it's a matter of getting that view across to whoever you think needs it. Right. I'd point out that if you want to know how to do that, Peter Chen wrote a book on electronic engagement, a guide for public sector managers. Cool. You put that on can your you blog? Can you say that again? Post? Electronic engagement, a guide for public sector managers. Dr. Peter Chen, 2007, available free online. Oh, even better. <laughs> ANU's ePress. Um, 
I think that might be interesting in that it might, because it's designed for public sector managers, it might give you the mindset of how to, how to communicate things electronically to the public sector mm. so that they'd Can actually... jump in here because it's an appropriate it. moment to assess where we're at there was reference to the Open Universities Australia. This session can morph into the second session for the afternoon, which was about open education. We could stop podcasting. Have a coffee. Have a coffee and decide whether or not we're going to... Shall we do another podcast? I think I'd just like to add um, what I said earlier about auditing and accountability... I do know that at the upper echelons of TAFE and VET, the penny is beginning to drop. That They do understand now that there is a real pressure on people to conform to requirements that is not allowing any time for innovation, risk-taking, experimenting, playing. So it's, there are changes, or at least there's thinking now that acknowledges, OK, the system has been too rigid. And I would just like you know, to see that move forward because I'm just really... I kind of anguish when I look at teachers and that's just, that's all they can do. That's all they can do is just keep the auditors at bay and then it's on to the but next course. What, what interests me is that quite often the auditors are not subject matter experts, so quite often... Very they're, rarely. They're auditing to a, like, a, a so brief. it's not even a real audit. In, in, there's a lot of, you know, mistakes. And I should add too, they're not all clerics. There are some auditors who are ex-teachers, ex-lecturers, properly trained. That's also changing, but the bulk of them are not. But if you're not a subject matter expert, how can you properly audit? It would be my well, What you're to, auditing I against is subject matter specific. Yeah. No, no you say QTF. Yeah. yeah. And I used to do yeah. workplace training and assessment and, and know nothing about uh, rock climbing. And I did assess a guy, a, a lecturer in, in rock climbing. And I didn't need to know anything about it. All right. Better round up. Better round up. One hour. I've got 13. Thank you, Michael. And yeah. thank you, Thanks everyone. Everybody. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Tom's blog post, just before we switch off. Tom, can I just send that to to the synopsis? Yeah, okay. Yep. Yeah. I'll stick it on the uh, on the show notes. Tom Worthington. Right. Cool. Fabulous.